Our Old Testament reading is from Isaiah chapter 11. A shoot shall come out from the stump of Jesse and a branch shall grow out of its roots. The spirit of the Lord shall rest on him, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. His delight shall be in the fear of the Lord. He shall not judge by what his eye sees or decide by what his ears hear, but with righteousness he shall judge the poor and decide with equity for the meek of the earth. He shall strike, down, strike the earth with the rod of his mouth and with the breath of his lips he shall kill the wicked. Righteousness shall be the belt around his waist and faithfulness the belt around his loins. The wolf shall live with the lamb and the leopard shall lie down with the kid, the calf and the lion and the fatling together and the little child shall lead them. The cow and the bear shall graze, their young shall lie down together and the lion shall eat straw like an ox. The nursing child shall play over the hole of the asp and the weaned child shall put its hand in the adder's den. They will not hurt or destroy on all my holy mountain and the earth will be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Hear the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ according to Matthew. Glory to you, O Lord. In those days, John the Baptist appeared in the wilderness of Judea proclaiming, repent for the kingdom of heaven has come near. This is the one of whom the prophet Isaiah spoke when he said, the voice of the one crying out in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. Now John wore clothing of camel's hair with a leather belt around his waist and his food was locust and wild honey. Then the people of Jerusalem and all Judea were going out to him and all the region along the Jordan and they were baptized by him in the river Jordan confessing their sins. But when he saw many Pharisees and Sadducees coming for baptism, he said to them, you brood of vipers, who warned you to flee the wrath to come? Bear fruit worthy of repentance. Do not presume to say to yourself, we have Abraham as our ancestor. For I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children of Abraham. Even now the ax is lying at the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. I baptize you with water for repentance, but one who is more powerful than I is coming after me. I am not worthy to carry his sandals. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand, and he will clear the threshing floor and will gather his wheat into the granary but the chaff he will burn up with unquenchable fire. This is the gospel of the Lord. Praise to you, O Christ. Let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, we ask that as we think on familiar words from this part of the prophecy of Isaiah, that you would give us ears to hear, that you would give us understanding so that we as individuals and we as a community, that we would understand how we could inhabit these words of hope and confidence for our future. Would you meet us, we pray, as we think on these things this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. So throughout this Advent season, we have been looking at different texts from Isaiah's uh, prophecy, and these texts enlarge and anchor our imagination in those things that God promises about his world that is to come, 
as his king comes into the world to bring that world into a reality. Uh, Isaiah imagines things that feel unimaginable in his present context and even in our own present context. And yet it is a kingdom and a world in which all life flourishes. The promise became flesh in the birth of Jesus. But very much we are still people like Isaiah's day waiting for the fullness of that promise, waiting for that world to burst in fullness uh, into our present existence. Isaiah's prophetic words are historically situated in a very different social and political and cultural climate than our own. And yet, these are the same kinds of things that we remain anxious about political frustration, wondering if we'll have a leader worthy and capable of leading us well and leading us beyond the present circumstances of injustice and inequity to a place of goodness and truth and blessing for all. We long for justice. Um, We long for something like Isaiah prophesies of. His vision then called the people long ago to bring their imaginations back to those things that God actually promises and to situate our hope on the God who will bring it to pass. So this morning, as we think on this particular text in Isaiah 11, let's consider how these words reorient us to the promise of God. Three things, the gift, the character, and the fruit of God's coming king and his reign. So first, the gift of a king. God promises, uh, his promises rather, take shape in the midst of a world that is unraveling. When I think about this part of Isaiah's uh, prophecy around the coming king, I immediately think of Isaiah's own prophetic call when he senses the unraveling of his own political world with the death of King Uzziah. Here, Isaiah calls us to remember that we come to a God of the impossible, a God who works beyond our wildest imagination. Here he uses the image of a felled tree, a tree chopped down, and there's nothing but a mere stump that remains. And yet there in the midst of impossibility, the stump sprouts a shoot that will become another tree that is fruitful. Isaiah reminds us that nothing is impossible for God and that God's kingdom, his promises will come true regardless of our ability to imagine how we might stabilize the future. God's promises are greater than our ability to even imagine a world of justice and goodness for all. The kingdom is all gift and it is all grace. We read these words mindful of Jesus' own birth into his own world of impossibility, the impossible world of the Roman Empire in which some enjoyed prosperity, but vast numbers of other persons enjoyed disparity. That was the common aspect of their lives. Experiences of injustice, experiences of the abuse of power, experiences of a lack of love and embrace and provision fear, anxiety, threat of war, and further violence was the world in which Jesus was born into. If the stump was but a stump in Isaiah's day of that first imagining of this scene, it's more a stump in the midst of the Roman Empire. Israel is an occupied territory by the greatness of Rome who promised peace but left in place only a partial peace that was costly and violent to many. 
Today, we also take up these words of hope. In a moment when we look around our own experiences in the midst of a pandemic, in the midst of our own concerns about the politics of our own country or the way that plays out on the world scene, as we think about all of the personal things that hurt us or that remind us that life is very much not as it ought to be, we're aware of our frailty. The stump feels like a stump. Where will this hope come from? Where will this peace come from? And even though we read these words in the aftermath of all that God has done in Jesus, we are still awaiting people, waiting for God to bring the fullness of his kingdom at the return of Jesus, the gift and the grace of the king. Now second, the character of the king. This is so important and maybe it cheers your heart to imagine a human being living in our world in goodness and truth and beauty and justice. That is the picture that Isaiah has of this coming leader of God's kingdom. Isaiah tells us that the spirit of the Lord rests upon him, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, of counsel and might, the spirit of the knowledge of the fear of the Lord. And more than that, this individual delights in the fear of the Lord. Think on these things for a moment. This spirit-filled king is capable of seeing into the heart of the chaos of our world and our lives. He can separate fact from fiction, real news from fake news, if you will. A king who distinguishes rightly among substantive issues of justice. He also is described as one that possesses counsel and might. These are military words that would be used in the day to describe strategist. In other words, Isaiah says this person not only can distinguish justice, can talk about justice, but actually knows how to enact it so that it becomes the norm of society. He possesses great power to enact his plans. And he's not only powerful, he's described as righteous, which we should understand that his heart, his life, everything about him is aligned with who God is and what God has promised and what God wants. This is a person who does not use his power narcissistically, who does not use his power turned in upon himself, but leverages all that he has for the sake of others uses power, his counsel, to serve society and the world itself. And beneath all of this, and really undergirding all of this, is this language that he is a person who fears the Lord and more delights in the fear of the Lord. When you delight in something, and all of us have moments of delighting, um, I delighted in snow this last week, and some of you did too. When we delight in something, we begin to give our imagination to the object of our delight. We long for it, we focus upon it. And here we're described a king, a leader, who will spend himself on the fear of the Lord. Think about what this might mean. Fear is a word that is very often connected with the God of scripture. You can imagine for a moment just sitting where you are or in your life circumstance, whatever they are, if, in this moment, someone had the power or the ability to sort of peel back the veil between our world and God's world, what would you experience? What would you see? What would you behold? It might be that you would imagine seeing the dazzle and the beauty, the magnitude of the heavens, maybe angelic beings, but almost immediately, you would probably feel overwhelmed. 
And you would feel overwhelmed for Gary, very good reason, because we are finite people. We're persons of limited uh, capacity. We are not God himself. And when we begin to think about ourselves in the context of a God who is great and good and perfect and holy, almost immediately we become aware of all of the ways in which we're not him. In all the ways, as importantly, in which we don't live out the kind of vision that his world articulates, that he describes of his coming kingdom and its goodness. We imagine ourselves to be so deficient in the presence of a God like this. And so it's not surprising when you think, for example, of Isaiah's own calling as a prophet in that moment when Uzziah has died and he goes into the temple and he beholds the vision of God's throne and the angelic beings, Isaiah is undone in himself. And you could think further into the New Testament period of those moments, maybe with the shepherds in the fields watching their flocks by night, right? And they, the heavens open up and they behold the angelic presence that brings this announcement of the birth of Jesus that their first reaction is to be overwhelmed by the greatness of what they are seeing. Is this a good message? Is this a bad message? And so the angels are very quick to say, fear not. But there is a way of fearing the Lord that is not our undoing, but rather our making. And I think that is the kind of fear that Isaiah has in mind here. This is a picture of a king who orders his life by the presence and the nearness of God who comes near in grace and mercy. His life will be caught up in this conversive life, this conversational life with God, who is a God of mercy, who is showing up in our world, who says, here's the plan of what heaven and earth united might look like. And this leader will live by the reality of that. This is a fear of ordered by attachment with God, if you will, a humble, grace-filled attachment to the God who comes near us in peace. That is the reality that is at the core of this person's being, that is the object of his delight. In other words, here at last is someone who lives the way a human being is meant to live, in the fear of the Lord leverage toward the kindness of humanity, loving neighbor as self. He delights in the Lord. His life is caught up in this conversation that God wants to have with us about the goodness he intends to bring into our own experience of life. Now quickly and third, the fruit of this king's reign, it is defined by unimaginable newness. The famous description that runs through these verses beginning at verse six and running all the way through eight is this depiction of new creation erupting in the midst of the old. This wild, crazy, almost unimaginable division, vision rather of the animal kingdom itself, sort of all of its hostilities erased. Realigned in peace, there are no predators, there is no prey. Wolf, leopard, lion, get along with lamb, goat, and calf. Cows and bears graze together. Children are in their midst. Both lion and ox eat hay. What is Isaiah seeing? It's something that the only way he knew to describe was to say, think of all of the spaces of conflict that you can imagine in human life. Imagine them erased. Imagine them gone. 
This is a picture of a return to some Eden-like context of existence in which peace is present fully in our world, a peace that we have not ever been able to manufacture for ourselves or even barely to dream of. Secondly, it's defined by this absolute removal of all curse, this notion of children playing at the hole of the serpent, right? The adder sticking his hand into the the den of the adder. This is an echo perhaps of the fall story that's told in Genesis chapter three, when God says that he would put enmity between the serpent and the seed of the woman and humanity itself. And what Isaiah begins to describe here is that the enmity is gone, the danger is gone. Blessings flow far as the curse is found. Finally, it's described as a beautiful reunion of humanity itself that shares in this common universal life with God. Verses nine and 10, the peoples of the earth are reunited to God and to one another. The wholeness of new creation extends well beyond the borders of Israel into the entirety of the earth so that all people everywhere are brought into communion with this God and brought into communion with one another. It's not hard to see that Isaiah is seeing and writing about an end of exile that reaches all the way back to the garden story itself, the beginning of human history. And Isaiah seems to be saying, look, God will do the impossible. All shall be well. So think for just a moment about the conflicts you're aware of in your own home as you anticipate gathering with a few family members this Christmas, the time that can be so stressful for all of us. Think about the potential conflicts that exist in your family of origin. Think about the difficulties that you know of in your work context, or think about more broadly the conflicts that you're well aware of in our society as a whole or internal to our own city. Can you imagine a world in which food insecurity is no more? locally or globally? Can you imagine a world in which racism and white supremacy is erased, not just in our attitudes and our mentality toward one another, but erased from our institutional life itself? Can you fathom a world like that? That's the kind of world that Isaiah is imagining. It's a world in which immigrants can show up on the doorstep of yet another country with the anticipation of sharing in their wealth because the members of that country aren't living as if they're living in a world of scarcity, but rather there are people living in the abundance of God's world, of his kingdom come. Isaiah paints an amazing picture of the world that is to come, and that is our Advent hope. Oliver O'Donovan, a theologian, draws a distinction between the ways that human beings relate to the future He says there are basically two ways that you and I sort of order our lives towards some future. We live in anticipation of things and we live with hope for other things. And he says the difference between these are pretty important and it's actually easier for us to live with anticipation. So think about his description this way. It's something like this. We sow the seeds of the things that we anticipate. So we're in the moment when Moderna just was announced its approval of its vaccine, right? So we have Pfizer and we have Moderna. These are vaccines that have been developed. And so what? It is reasonable that we will anticipate the end of a pandemic. 
If you're uh, an individual that's recently engaged, I happen to know a few of you, but if you are one of those individuals, you have reason to anticipate married life. If you're someone who entered the university this year, even in the midst of pandemic, you have reason to anticipate the conclusion of your degree objective. If you're someone offered a job, you have reason to anticipate some meaningful vocation in life. You get the point. We sow the seeds of things that we anticipate in the context of our everyday lives. We expect things to happen in the space of our time existence between my birth and my death, anticipation. But hope is quite different, O'Donovan argues. He said it lifts our imagination beyond the scope of our own lifetime to a horizon well beyond to these promises of God. Maybe we would think about it in this language of the long arc of human history, that we lift our eyes up to a greatness of what will be because God is the one who promises it. Hope is built out of promises that we don't have a right to anticipate, but that we long for. And the strength of that hope is based on the one who promises. The long arc of human history, or better, the long arc of God's promise of a world once and for all time put right, that is our Advent hope. Christmas is an amazing story of hope and restoration that begins when God's promise becomes a person and redemption ripples through the surface of time in the cry of a tiny babe and runs through the existence of Jesus' own lifetime and into his death and through his resurrection and into his ascension and through the gift of the Spirit at Pentecost as we wait the return of the King. And in the meantime... This strange and challenging historical period in which you and I live in the knowledge of who Jesus is and what he promises, we seek to live in such a way as to reflect the goodness of the future now in the middle of our lives today. N.T. Wright says of the church's vision that our task vis-a-vis the world is to model genuine humanness as a sign and an invitation to those around. And that is our hope. And that is our calling as we think about our work individually as followers of Jesus. And as we think about it as a joined and merged church under this name resurrection, is that we would be a model home of the humanness that God intends for humanity in Jesus Christ and that we would be a sign and an invitation to our neighbors and to the world around that we would come to this God as our hope. May God give us grace to hope and live within the long arc of his promised history. In the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, amen.